So, welcome back to How AI Built This, uh, the podcast dedicated to data and entrepreneurial storytelling. As always, we're brought to you by Cathcart Associates, technology recruitment experts. Today on the show, I will be speaking to Ben Hookway, um, CEO of Relative Insight, a data startup uh, headquartered in Lancaster, um, who specialise in turning language into data. Ben, welcome to the show. Thanks very much, Liam. Nice to be here. Thanks for joining. So, we always start kind of around the world of education or what you did kind of post school you went to Edinburgh uni right I did yes I was about I to did. ask you if you uh, if you decided that you just wanted to move up to Scotland but then did you grow up in Scotland I did grow up in Scotland so I grew up in North Berwick near Edinburgh and then went to Edinburgh University and then and then after that I moved to Manchester amazing after uni was it you needed to go to Scotland like is that why you moved to Manchester um, it was more about jobs, right? So I ended up doing the joining the graduate scheme of what is now Fujitsu uh, Systems, the Japanese IT company, uh, and that meant a move to to Manchester, um, which I did for about eighteen months. And then I was lucky enough to get a placement with Fujitsu out in the states, which initially was going to be for six months, and then turned into six years. So I ended up being in DC for three years, and then San Francisco for three years. In a variety of tech companies, uh, amazing. Came back to the UK. What did you? Because those grad schemes you touch on like loads of different areas. That's the whole point, right? Like you join like, one of those grad schemes at like a big company, and you end up doing loads to learn a bit more about the company. Where did you kind of settle? Like, what what was your main thing? Oh, I was so I was absolutely always going to be sales. That was my my thing. So it sort of started me on a course, which was always going to be around usually B2B infrastructure technology type stuff. I used to, I'm old enough to have sold mainframes, that sort of stuff. <laughs> um, so we did a lot of mainframe, mainframe and infrastructure sales to big systems integrators like EDS, uh, UK government, people like that. Um, but I got the knack of um, being able to take technical concepts and sort of package them up commercially. So that was really what I ended up doing for them. Nice. And basically, that's what I've done ever since. No, amazing. Uh, it's a good knack to have. And yeah, I was going to mention the state. So you ended up working kind of, like you said, in DC, San Francisco, and for a bunch of different companies, always in that kind of technology sales kind of world. Yeah. So when I went over, uh, that was DC originally. Um, and this was kind of mid to late 90s or the start of the dot-com boom. If you haven't heard of that, kids, to ask your parents. So it was, um, it was quite, it was a bit of a wild time. So, I mean, I went over and I was channel sales manager for the whole of the West and like, everything West of the Mississippi for a particular piece of infrastructure project product, which competed with Netscape amongst others. Um, and there you go. You've got everything West of the Mississippi go sell. That was, that was basically it. Was that, uh, I don't know, was that like a rude awakening into technology sales and like the the responsibility of working over in the states or was it something that was just like you were wide-eyed bushy-tailed and just went for it um it's probably a bit of both i mean i think i i loved living in the states because a lot of the cliches are true so you know if you're if you're good enough you're old enough is kind of the maxim so what that meant was i was dealing with like for my division massive accounts at a relatively young age i went over when i was 24 so I was dealing with massive accounts at what is quite a young age. And there's, you know, there's, no way, there's absolutely no way I would have been let loose 
near any of those sort of sizes of accounts when I when I was working for Fujitsu in the mainstream in in the UK because you had much more experienced people uh, doing it and you'd have to work your way up and so on. So I said it is kind of it is land of opportunity. You know, you know here's here's some LDAP directory infrastructure and here's everything west of the Mississippi. Go and see what you can do with it. I mean that was really it. And we had some basic lead generation, so we would do like events and things like that. But it was also pretty technical sale, right? So this wasn't, it wasn't SaaS. SaaS hasn't actually been invented at that point. It was on-prem licenses, um, you know, big one-off deals, you know, multi-million deals, um, long lead times, uh, sales cycles with some sort of players like Lucent, EDS, um, you know, big financial institutions, people like that. Are these the ones like so I've spoken to even a few companies now trying to sell into big, big accounts and lead times can be six months plus easily. Like was that the kind of stuff you were looking at? Yeah, absolutely. Six six would have been fast. That's crazy. I always find that so crazy, just the job we do. Like I suppose you you do get long term things, but it just seems mental to like start a conversation and then nine, ten months later sign it off. Yeah, I mean, I think it's also a function of the sort of the financial model. So, at, at risk of sounding like you know, wise old man, this was pre, this was pre SaaS. So, conceptually, software as a service is a rental of software. Okay, so you're yeah, you might be committing for a year, or you might be committing for six months, or you might be committing for two years as as a buyer, but you are mitigating your risk. The whole point of SaaS is that it spreads the risk of buying uh, across the buyer and the vendor. However, um, pre-SaaS, when it's a non, what's called a non-premise sale, uh, what you were doing was selling the code for the software product, and that was it. Right? They bought it, they implemented it, and it was theirs. If it turned out to be rubbish, their problem. If it turned out to be not what they actually thought it was, it's their problem, and so on and so on. So you've got this combination of higher ticket, you know, you've got like million dollar deals, but um, much more the risk was being taken on by the customer. So that just naturally meant that quite obviously they were going to take a lot more um, time to decide what the right thing to do was. Yeah, no, that makes sense. And you ended up, we're kind of, we're skipping out quite a bit of your career here, but that's fine. Uh, so you ended up becoming kind of CEO of a company called Videactive, right? Was, first yeah. of all, was that, was that your company? And also, was that kind of leadership running a business? Like, did that all just make sense after the amount of work you did in the States? Like, was that just a normal thing for you to come into or did you kind of fall into it? Um, no, so there is... Th- You've skipped one piece, which is probably fundamental to the rest of this story. So oh, let's go back. When, that, that's okay. So um, when, I, when when we came back from the states, this was in there was a dot com crash. It was like it was it was awful. It was it was awful. Like you know, you wake up one morning and there's literally twenty thousand people out of work in the valley, and the motorways are empty and so on. Anyway, I ended up coming back and um, starting. A, I ended up starting a company. So myself and two friends did a spin out of some IP from a company that I was going in doing a turnaround job on. And we co-founded a mobile phone software business called Next Device, which was, um, again, it was sort of embedded software, pre, kind of pre, pre-iPhone, just before the iPhone, which did user interface technology. 
And we were selling that into South Korea. So we were sort of bootstrapping and trying to sell into Samsung and LG and you know, these, these kinds of companies in, in Asia. Then we got some uh, VC funding. Um, and then about 18 months after that, we got an offer for the business. So we ended up exiting the business. So that was a good result for the VC because you make the money. It's very different though, founding a company with friends and then you kind of get quote unquote successful and you exit. And then what tends to happen is that investors will ask you to come and run other projects for them. It's, I call it the theory of, you know, just because you got lucky once, they think you can get lucky every single time. And that's what Vidiactive was. So that was another portfolio company of the VC, which was in a, a bit of, which was in trouble and needed a, a rebuild. Um, so that's why I ended up joining Vidiactive. But that was as a sort of professional CEO, not as a sort of founding CEO. Yeah, okay, no, I get it. That's a great story, though. The, the first company you started with friends managed to exit because that just doesn't happen, right? Um, well, it can do, but it was pretty. It, it was pretty formative experience. I mean, it was two friends. It was deep, tricky technology at a time in our lives when we were, you know, having babies and you know, and starting families and all this kind of stuff, and trying to sort of bootstrap a company while selling into South Korea. It was, yeah, it was insane. Actually, it was. It, there's a, a particular two-year period, which is incredibly intense, but fantastic fun. And did you? How did you find that kind of selling into Asia, having done sales in the UK, done sales in the US? Like, did you end up having to go over there quite a lot, or was it receptive to do it from the UK? You could do something in the UK, but um, certainly the way, particularly LG and Samsung were set up, was that you could have meetings in the UK, but they really wanted to test your commitment. And as they saw it, commitment meant getting on an airplane and being there, not just once or twice or three times, but continually and getting involved in projects that way. That's a big commitment though from, from the UK to South Korea, like constantly. Yeah. So yeah, there was a lot of, I mean, and South Korea is an absolutely fantastic place. It's you know, I've spent a lot of time there and um, it was, it was, it was really, really good fun, but culturally it's, it's a massive gap. Um, it's, it's like a bland sounding statement, I know, but but then the, so there's the, the cultural gap. Um, there's a sort of subtleties of Sam of how Samsung operate and how LG operate, um, and then on top of that, you're not doing this as Fujitsu anymore with sort of you know big resources behind you. You're doing this you know off air miles that you've collected over <laughs> over your you know last period of career. And at the time, I, my wife was working in Lancashire, and she had the good car, the Focus, and the, I had. I ended up buying a two hundred and fifty pound red Escort XR three I, which is just is awful. And I would what I would do, I would drive it to my father in law's who who lives in sort of High Wycombe. He put me on the insurance for his Audi A four, and then I'd do the last ten miles to uh, Samsung HQ in Staines in his Audi A four, rock off at the customer looking like I'm a big shot. That's Even amazing. Yeah, do the meeting, get back in the IDA4, swap it over to the XR3i 250-pound death trap and then drive home to Manchester. That's an amazing story. Yeah, because we've got uh, we've got an officer in Bangkok and it's been going for five years now, actually, so maybe a bit longer. So it's, it's different now, but I think that was probably the biggest learning curve for my two directors and the guy that went and set it up for us. Um, he had an insight into Thai culture because of um, his now wife having done recruitment and sales in the UK, like going over to Bangkok and trying to replicate that exactly was quite tricky. Yeah, it's a, it's a big, uh, well, actually, some, funnily enough, my brother used to live in Bangkok and his um, his his daughter's a Thai and so on. Um, he's back in the UK now, but uh, yeah, it's 
doing doing anything in Asia is a, a bigger shock than most people realize. Yeah, I mean, I can see how like UK to US would work, and even like the US coming over here, like vice versa, again would work. Um, but yeah, it can get progressively more interesting. Uh, so no, it's pretty cool that you, you guys managed to to get an offer for the company. So after Vidiatum, again, you've done some other work with with startups in various uh, capacities, but we'll jump into kind of January 2014, which I think is roughly when Relative Insight kind of kicked yeah. off. So tell us a bit, kind of how a bit about how Relative Insight started, kind of the link with Lancaster University, and uh, I suppose kind of like the initial reason for setting the company up. Yeah. So the Again, so, so Relative Insight sort of span out of Lancaster University. Uh, and then I, and again, I got a bit of investment from uh, an investor I knew. So I, at that point, was just sort of consulting just to sort of figure out what the tech was and how it could be applied. And then once we decided on the direction we were, we, we've now ended up in, then I, I kind of came in as CEO full time. The, the genesis story, though, is so right now, at Relative Insight, as you know it today, is a language analytics company which um, focuses on consumer insight and consumer experience. So our mission in life is to drive business value out of all of that language and text data which companies have sloshing around. Um, and that tends to be quite difficult because it's siloed. It's actually quite hard to analyze language um, meaningfully. There's a lot of disappointment. I think in text analytics, like no one wants to see another word cloud. <laughs> so, um, so what we do is provide a SaaS platform to enable companies to like get meaningful value out of that data quickly and easily. And so we have, you know, we have Prudential in the US, we have Best Buy in the US, we have John Lewis, we have Formula One, we have, you know, we've got some really, really big, exciting customers. So that's what we do now, but it's nowhere near what we started off doing. So the original project was in law enforcement, actually. The whole purpose of the research was to catch people masquerading online. And in particular, uh, we, we focused on child protection. This was when it's kind of pre-mobile, so it's maybe like early 2000s when a lot more activity was on desktops and chat rooms and, and things of this nature. And essentially, the problem we're designed to solve is, do you know that that is a 13-year-old girl online? Or is it a 40-year-old man doing a really good impression of a 13-year-old girl? That, that was the behavior we were sort of designed to, to catch. Now, uh, so, so as an offending behavior, it's, I mean, obviously it's, it's bad and it's sinister, but it's also quite sophisticated. You would have people pretending to be a 13-year-old girl or pretending to be multiple people on a chat room. And if you're pretending to be multiple people, you can have artificial conversations which sort of guide people towards certain outcomes, like meeting up, for instance. Our job was to sort of try and uncover this and essentially turn this language stuff into an intelligence asset for the police. But... The challenge from a sort of a data point of view is that the bad guys are extremely good at it. So they will sound 97, 98% the same as a real 13 year old girl, absolutely to the point where a teenager couldn't tell the difference. So if you were to take that suspect language in isolation and uh, put it into a sort of standalone text analytics system, the system would probably tell you it's a 13 year old girl. 
So that's obviously not the outcome you want. Um, so what we ended up doing was developing a comparative solution. So what you care about is not what the offender says. What you actually want to do is compare the suspect language set with verified genuine 13-year-old girl data language, which we would get from the law enforcement agencies. And what the system does is that it compares the two and isolates the difference. So it's the 3% difference that you care about. It's not the 97% similarity. It's the differences that would catch people. So what this would lead to would be, you know, out of a thousand possible avenues of investigation for the police, the system would narrow it down to 50 probables. And so from, obviously from a resourcing point of view, that was a massive, massive thing for the police. So this comparison idea was and remains key to everything we do. It's the difference, but it, what you say fundamentally doesn't matter if you think about it. What matters is what is different between what you're talking about and what somebody similar to you talks about. It's like, you know, if, if, you know, if you're assessing candidates, everyone's got pretty similar CVs, everyone's got, you know, it says, you know, roughly the same thing. It's the differences between them that you're looking for, not sort of, it's very rare that you'll absorb an entire block of text and, and, and sort of assess it from first principles. Yeah, no, that makes sense. And I'm sure when, I think it's similar, so, I mean, feel free to correct me if I'm wrong, um, but I'm sure when we met in Edinburgh that one of the examples you or one of the, the guys gave me about the kind of, just to make it easily understandable, if you're working with a large, like, cosmetics company, certain yeah. certain demographics say things slightly differently. So I'm sure one of the examples you gave us was, like, a certain age group would say they wear makeup and a certain age group would say they apply yeah. makeup. And on the face of it, that doesn't sound like a big deal but when you're spending millions on marketing that's probably quite handy to know right yeah so these you're exactly right that's well remembered that's one of the, the sort of greatest hits things so when we when we sort of stumbled our way into this sort of market which is a whole well i mean but maybe we'll, we'll touch on that a little bit but that's exactly right if you compare we did this for a massive makeup brand in the us um they were trying to appeal to a younger age group um and what we did was that well Let's understand the difference between how younger age groups talk about cosmetics and how older age groups talk about cosmetics. And what you want to understand is the difference. So what we actually took was review data for that example. So if you take reviews of cosmetics by 20-somethings in North America and then reviews by 50-somethings in North America and compare them, 85% is exactly the same, which is what you would expect given the topic. But it's the differences that matter. And one of the, one of, one of the differences was that the younger group tend to say they wear makeup and the older group tend to say they apply makeup. Now that sounds almost trivial, but this stuff really matters because people will tend to engage with you if you talk to them in their language style. You, you, you can't overdo it, right? Otherwise you're a bit sort of dad at the disco trying to be too cool. <laughs> um, but there's lots of examples. Like The, the other one is... Um, if you compare how people who own a DSLR camera, uh, so DSLR camera forums compared with sort of regular people talking about the photos they've taken. Like the, the peasant folk with like normal cameras. That's how well, I imagine DSLR people talk about them. Yeah, right. <laughs> so DSLR, if you're a DSLR, you're more likely to say you shoot images. Yeah, not surprised. Everyone, everyone else takes pictures. 
But that is why the Apple poster campaign says shot on iPhone. It doesn't say taken on iPhone. And that's, ah. that is, that's very conscious. That's clever. Because even though um, not everyone's a great photographer, everyone sort of thinks that they could be. So that's why that's in there. So if you think then about all this, so that's, that's examples of using review language and then another example of using uh, forum language. And then if you think about the comparison axis, the first one was age, so comparing by age. And then the second one was um, comparing by audience type. Um, and this sort of number of uh, com comparisons just goes on and on. So for example, how people talk about Diet Coke on social media, and we've done a lot on this. Well, how people talk about Diet Coke on social media is not that interesting, right? So if you just <laughs> did that in isolation, it would say Diet Coke, taste, pizza, you know, whatever. Um, what's much more interesting is understanding how people talk about Diet Coke now compared to how they talked about Diet Coke before the ad campaign. The difference in language is the actual effect of the ad campaign in how people perceive Diet Coke, and that has to be measured. Um, or, for example, how do people talk about Diet Coke compared to Diet Pepsi? Really, what's the difference in how people regard these two brands? What they say in totality doesn't matter, it's the differences. So do people talk about and Diet Pepsi in the context of sport more, or do people talk about you know Diet, Diet Coke in relation to, I don't know, Donald Trump more? <laughs> um, so these comparisons can be across time, by audience, by geography, um, but basically any point of metadata that you've got, we compare language by. And what this will do is it will turn this, this language asset that you've got as a corporation from this thing which is, frankly, quite often seen as a bit of a pain to being um, a strategically valuable data asset, which you can now do 10 or 100 times more analysis on very, very quickly and get real value out of. Yeah, no, I mean, it's, it's super interesting. And, and uh, just even thinking now, like the amount of places that you could apply the relative insight technology must be, I don't know, it might even be daunting for you guys because like you could do it across automotive stuff. You could do like, I, I don't know if you already do this, but like, I'm sure there's different sentiment where the same brand is viewed differently in different countries. Yeah, that's that's exactly right. Uh, and even you know the, the same topic is discussed in different countries. So one of the um, ones we did not so long ago was gaming um, ad. So there's a big uh, gaming franchise, and they were doing ads for you know to promote the new the new release of the game. Um, and they had assumed that the UK and the US gaming audience were exactly the same. So what we did was that we looked at discussion. Um, by gamers, and then we compared it by US and UK. And it turned out there's actually some really interesting differences in UK and US gamers. So US gamers talk about live streaming a lot more. They tend to talk about kill rate, hit rate, that sort of thing a lot more. They tend to use social media tags and promotion when they're talking about gaming a lot more as well. The contrast to that is that the UK audience will talk about when they can play a lot more. So after school, after work, at the weekend, that kind of stuff. They tend to talk about the graphics substantially more. So graphic quality. So phrases like breathtaking and gorgeous and, and, and stunning. 
come up a lot more in, in the UK audience. So we, we're more sophisticated in terms of assessing graphics, I guess. But then rather embarrassingly, the UK audience talks about where we buy the game and how much cheaply we can get it in one place or another, like substantially <laughs> more than the US audience. That honestly does surprise me, that last one. Yeah. So um, all of these things led to uh, the the customer, the, the gaming house, actually recutting the ad for the UK. So they did a different version of the ad, emphasizing different things on the back of that, on the back of those insights. Nice. And this isn't, isn't even on my sheet. I've just thought of it now. But do you guys, it sounds like you work mostly with marketing, like marketing departments and marketing groups within companies is it sometimes hard to sell or maybe in the early days maybe not so much now that you've got so many examples but in the early days like the results are after an ad campaign right or they can sometimes be difficult to ascertain quickly so like do you, is it hard to get that trust to be able to go and tell them for example there's a difference between us and uk when maybe they might have just thought stuff it we'll stick the same ad out and hope for the best um no not usually actually so the we we sell primarily to two groups inside companies um one is sort of consumer and marketing insights and then the other is customer experience so what you find is that and we sell both to brands directly and also to major ad agencies as well so we have some of the biggest um, ad agencies use our stuff to uncover it like sachi and sachi and weber shanwick and rga in new york so what you find is, is that you, you go in, obviously, we tell them about our background, and that gets people interested. Um, and what you find is, you get this reaction, which is, at last, someone who's showing up, not giving me a word cloud. Number one, <laughs> right? um, and then after that, what you find is, um, they realize that we might be going in talking to them about how we can make their particular social media listening data more useful. But then they realize that we can analyze any data. And what they normally always have is loads of language data in the form of, um, say, open-end surveys, uh, transcripts from focus groups, um, interviews, all of this kind of stuff. Um, and they're not really doing that much with it. Or they know they ought to be, but there's no kind of easy way to go off and really get stuck in. That's when we really come into our own. So we end up being this vendor of record really inside companies to be able to store and analyze all of their language data so it goes from being this kind of pain in the backside sort of um, data asset to being something which is easily analyzed but not only that it we move it beyond one and done so it's not just analyzed once and then you forget that data what you find is that um, as stuff gets loaded into the system, uh, people will continually reuse that data for more and more analysis. So if you're doing, for example, you know, NPS um, open-end survey comment analysis in January, well, you've also got April, May, June, July, August, September, October, November, December from last year as well. So you can start comparing January's NPS to say May last year or the average of last year. And then that tells you whether you're getting better or worse. So there's normally instant things we can go in uh, and make an impact on. It's normally uh, on the consumer insight stuff, it tends to be quite strategy um, and ad language orientated. On the consumer, ex on the kind of customer experience stuff, uh, it tends to be a lot more performance orientated. So for example, 
you know, we regularly do things like good outcome versus bad outcome live chat. So by comparing the two, you can isolate the linguistic attributes of a bad outcome live chat. And then what you can do is understand whether those linguistic attributes are specific to just a handful of uh, customer experience agents, or is it all 500 of your team saying it all the time? Or is it just the Livingston call center? Is it the, the call center in Stockport? And so by understanding not only what language is indicative of a poor outcome, but then understanding how that language is distributed in your team, you can go off and make some instant corrections and improve your business. Nice. No, that makes sense. And I think Relative Insight is probably a pretty good example of why I think a couple of years or last year before I started this series, because I feel like you guys go under the radar a little bit in terms of like what you're doing in the Northwest and you're not in kind of every trade press outlet, every award ceremony, every trade show. I know we, yeah. spoke, about this, we spoke about this before. A lot of people seem to hedge all their kind of eggs in that basket and be at the front of the press, but not yeah. do, not really doing much. Whereas I think, I mean, I don't know, do you think it's fair to say that you and the team have just really lasered in over the last few years on like what you're doing, what you're building and kind of let it speak for itself to, to some degree? Yeah. Yeah, I mean, it's a function of a couple of things. I think um, the, the way the company's structured, where all the R&D and the ops um, are in Lancaster, uh, which is not Manchester, of course, which <laughs> that's, you know, so that's one reason why, you know, maybe the Northwest, you know, we don't get the, the coverage. The, this, the biggest office by headcount in, uh, is actually in London. So the sales and the commercial outfit is in London. And then we have an office in New York as well. Uh, Customer base is probably 40 to 45% out of the US as well. We have, in terms of the, the sort of shouty commercial publicity type stuff, you know, frankly, our customer base is it's, it's sort of London orientated. Uh, it's London in the US. So from a, where we put our resources to go and promote ourselves, um, it's frankly, it's just not in the Northwest. Um, that's changing though, as we're scaling up um, the company and particularly the um, the technical team, we realized that we better get more, better known in the Northwest because we are Lancaster's sexiest company, which probably says more about Lancaster than us. But, you know, we're, we're like a genuinely world-class company. There's not many people can say that you've got a customer base. Of, and I can't mention the, some of the names which we work with, and they are like the world's biggest, most exciting companies. Um, and there's not many companies in the UK actually work with people like that, let alone in the Northwest. I think we, we are trying to promote our brand a bit more in the Northwest from a talent attraction point of view. We're doing okay, you know, on, on the commercial side, but um, it, mainly we've been cracking on and just selling stuff and executing rather than sort of, you know, shouting about it first and not executing later, which can happen. <laughs> it happens a lot. Was there, was there kind of a conscious decision from you that, you knew the company was probably going to grow out of London eventually into the States, um, that the commercial team would always be in London. Like, did that just make sense or was that more by chance? No, that was always really going to make sense. So, you know, even in the early days when we were looking at how we, the transition of, you know, going from law enforcement into this world was was quite tricky. I was spending quite a lot of time in London anyway because I had sort of other other connections down there. And sad to say, you know, it, you know, London's the biggest commercial center in Europe for for, for lots of obvious reasons so you know we can go down we could have meetings with you know multiple multiple customers you know within 30 minute walk of each other so it's just the sheer concentration and i think the other interesting thing is that the 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 customers that we initially got most of the traction with 
were where big innovation budgets tended to sit. So that tends to be at HQ level. So whether that's an agency um, or whether that's a brand, um, so so like the big brands we work with, like straight out the gate, were people like Unilever and Disney. So those budgets tended to be held in 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 London. Um, although you know agencies and, and and brands have sort of regional presence, they, they tend to, in my experience, certainly for the market we're in, they tend to be more um, operational uh, rather than sort of innovation. So we had to go to where the money is, um, and London was just kind of the obvious obvious place to start building it. And we've we've touched on this already, and you've you've had experience as well, so it's probably quite a good topic to, to get onto. But um, when it comes to fundraising as as a startup, as a founder, in fact, we actually met at a, a kind of pitching event in Edinburgh. Yeah. What you had such good experience before, I suppose, uh, and like you said, it was a good result for the VC when you and your friend sold the the first mm. company. What was your thoughts on it coming into Relative Insight, kind of a spin out of the uni? Like, was there a, an obvious route to funding or did you want to try to kind of avoid certain things? Uh, how, how did it play out in, in the kind of founders' minds? Well, the company actually span out and got funded almost immediately, actually, um, with, you know, without, without any revenue. So when it was just kind of out of the university, now as an independent company and, and starting on its commercialization journey, and it was initially funded by the Northwest Fund, which was the, the forerunner to uh, the Northern Powerhouse Investment Fund. This is VC money. Um, it's got a sort of quasi-regional development agenda with it, but it is managed by proper VCs. So the, the, the funding, the seed funding was already in place at that point. Um, and then the way to think about funding after that is really you've got to think through milestones so what milestone do we need to hit in order to justify the next you know amount of funding that's the, that's the way you've got to start thinking about it because it's much easier to approach investors with a narrative which was before we approached you or any investor we wanted to achieve outcome x that was our plan We've done that, and this enables us to go to our next milestone, which is milestone Y, and that's why we're approaching you for the next step of funding. That is much, much easier said than done. Um, <laughs> I'm, I'm always a little bit hesitant doling out advice because ad- advice is um, there's this great. I can't remember who 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 gave it, but I, I use this quite a lot, which is someone sort of coined this term for an equation. So advice equals nostalgia multiplied by my limited field of experience (laughs) so it's just kind of one person's point of view and and i think the other thing about advice is that you get a lot of advice is what to do advice the advice about what to do is easy how to do it is way more complicated and harder so i'll caveat everything i'm saying with sort of those two things So it's very easy to say, yeah, we're going to define um, an objective and we're going to get there on this funding. And then once we meet that objective, we're going to raise it. Like that's really easy advice to give. Like actually doing that and achieving that is a whole other sort of world of pain and difficulty. Um, But that's the way you want to think about going going at it. I'd sort of just sort of, I think, um, you know, rocking off and expecting to be funded just because you've got an idea or a bit of a product or or whatever. you know, you see that quite a lot and that, that's not going to work. Yeah, no, I think that is, I mean, it's good advice in that you need to, to walk before you can run, essentially. And then you mentioned this about the tech team, but we'll talk about kind of uh, scaling. 
you guys are, have grown and are growing rapidly. So now, I mean, you're now a, a kind of small to medium sized company rather than a kind of yeah. startup mode, I suppose. Yeah, we definitely, um, definitely scale up. We're about 55 people now. Yeah. So how has that journey been from three, four or five people to suddenly being 55? Like you've obviously worked in massive companies, so that experience might have helped. But like, how, how has that kind of transition been? Well, again, like, like all wisdom is, is um, retrospective, but it, it goes in steps. Like there's very clear steps. So I, I tend to subscribe to the quite a nice mental framework, which is the, the model of ones and threes. So every time your annual recurring revenue changes uh, with a one or a three in front of it, your company fundamentally is changing. So what that means is that you've got zero to one million ARR dollars, that is uh, one to three million dollars ARR, three to ten million dollars ARR, 10 to 30, 30 to 100 and so on. And each time you go through one of those boundaries, like how you think about the company, how it's structured and what you're prioritizing has to change. So the zero to one million is sometimes the easiest, frankly, from a mental point of view, because it's just scrambling for it's just scrambling for survival. Yeah. Because what you're trying to do is sell is just validate that you're not insane, that you that this <laughs> idea and this concept is going to get bought by somebody. And that's what you're trying to achieve at almost any cost. Um, now, ideally, at that point, what you're trying to do is then um, towards the end of that phase, you've got something which you're repeatedly selling. So it's not just some tech which is deployed differently every single time. Then you get into the next phase, which is the one to three. And that's when you've got to start proving that you can sell a repeatable standard product in a repeatable way at a repeatable price. So it's all about standardization and the beginnings of building out the machine, the sales machine. There's a couple of really obvious boundaries to, to overcome in that. And the first one is that the CEO is not selling every deal. So as a founder or an early, early participant in a company and you're the CEO, if you cannot sell the product, it's probably not going to be a business because CEOs quite often sell their product just out of sheer force of personality and belief, right? And finding, finding enough people or potential buyers out there who buy into your passion. So if you can't do that as a CEO, I, I personally, I think it's unlikely that you've got something which is really going to work. However, to scale, you cannot be selling every single product and every single deal. So then what you've got to do is start building a team and finding people who can do it as well, if not better than you. That is the, easily the hardest step. Right. How do you abstract everything out of your brain and put it into this new VP of sales brains? And this, from a hiring point of view, is quite commonly the, the biggest point of failure. Not uncommon to kind of hire the wrong VP of sales or first salesperson. And you, sometimes you need two or three goes at it to find it, to learn actually exactly what you need. So that's easily the biggest one. And so we're, we're well through that. And we've got a fantastic sales machine, fantastic chief revenue officer who's been very disciplined in building all this out. But that's key, absolutely key. And how did you find, it's maybe not the best question to ask because you've been around technical sales for or technical people and one of your skills is making technical things easily understandable for other people. So it may be a bit more easy for you. But as like a non-technical CEO, has it been 
harder to bring in the tech side of the business or the sales side because you know the sales side so well that you maybe had a higher bar than you did for other areas? Yeah, that's a great question because, I mean, what you're the, the classic problem there is like, how do you hire for roles that you have got no idea what great looks like because you don't do the role? So I know yeah. what a good CRO looks like because it, you know, it's something I've done in the past myself. Um, so from that point of view, actually, we've the, the founding team. So James and Phil, who are the original PhDs working on the project, um, occupy the roles of CTO. That's Phil and COO. That's James. So. Um, they know the product like no one else, and they know what's required like no one else. So in terms of assessing skills, I don't have to do that. You know, that's just not my job. That's Phil's job. Where I get involved is when maybe we're starting to hire the more senior people and we're starting to think about as the tech team scales out, um, because now you've got, you know, you, this is a, this is other point of growth where uh, one month, if your server goes down, nobody phones because you don't have that many customers. And then there's this another glorious point in your development where it goes down and all of a sudden the phones start ringing. That's like fantastic because it means people will actually care about your stuff going down. So as we build out like the team, then I get more involved in kind of what we look for in terms of technical leadership uh, aspects like that. Yeah, no, that makes sense. And we've touched on this uh, already, but it's maybe worth pointing out that the, the link with the university is... I mean, it's an amazingly positive thing, right? And and arguably, companies should probably do more of it. Is there also a kind of tricky point when you're talking about that kind of revenue milestone and bringing those customers in and all all those like kind of obvious scaling points where you've almost been spoiled by having great links with the university and you need that next step? Like, is that does that become part of the kind of board meetings and when you're chatting strategy? Like, yeah, do do we need to look out with some of the amazing things we've already got? Yeah, and actually, we're taking that's a good point, and we're taking action on that. So, so first of all, it's probably worth clarifying that although we it originated in the university, there's no formal connection between Relative Insight and Lancaster University. So, um, you know, there's no sort of commercial relationship at all. But obviously, we're very very close. The first major thing we've done is actually we're moving office. So we're leaving our empty office uh, in the, in the, in, on campus at Lancaster University, and we're actually moving into Lancaster Town. So there's a few reasons for that. Uh, one is actually sort of size. We're, we're getting a, a, a nice, you know, open beam brick, big windowed office building in the center of town, which is a five-minute walk from the train station. So we're doing that for, for a few reasons, but one of the most important is the ability to attract talent from the wider region without them having to get in a car. So for those of you who are unfamiliar with Lancaster University, it's a campus university, and it's about uh, three miles south of, of the town center. Um, so it's great if you're driving, because uh, there's loads of parking, uh, and it's easy to get to from the motorway it's a bit of a pain if you're using public transport. And obviously, Lancaster is well within the catchment for people who live in Manchester or Preston or, you know, a big swathe of the Northwest. So moving into town and being near the train station uh, is one of the steps we've taken to really increase the pool of people we can access. Yeah, no, it makes sense. Um, and yeah, the new office will be will be amazing um, whenever you're allowed to get in it. <laughs> uh, it's slated at the minute for... April we can go in in April I think is 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 the plan I'm not obviously that's not prime concern at the moment but yeah yeah that's going to be the idea 
No, but it'll be good to see. Obviously, we can't do a podcast without mentioning COVID. So it's, it feels like I can't believe it's almost been a year of talking about it on the podcast. But how, given that your clients are in the States and even or some of your clients are in the States, some are in London, some are other places, has the kind of COVID impact been slightly diluted in that you have to do this sort of communication quite regularly anyway? Uh, yeah. So we haven't really been impacted by, by COVID from a sales point of view. Our sort of sales approach is very disciplined and it's actually quite a short sales cycle so we it's normally weeks not it's certainly not you know the old days of nine months or 12 you know all this kind of stuff yeah it's a pretty short sales cycle and we were always sort of optimized to do it virtually anyway because um you know a lot of customers in the states uh even in the uk we we would do it uh, virtually we would always meet customers when we can because we like doing that but we have a, a very tight replicated sales process because we send we sell the same thing to everybody in the same way. Um, and in the US, people, your know, buyers in general are far were pre-COVID were always far more accepting of uh, virtual uh, meetings anyway because the, you know the distances in the states mean you can't just sort of nip around the corner and go and see people. So when COVID came along, you know all we did was just transfer you know, what we already did to, um, to to the market in the US. And so it hasn't actually impacted us at all. I mean, there's it, it's always customers I want to go and see, and I love meeting customers and really getting to understand how they're evolving their analytics functions and things like that. But yeah, it's turned out it's turned out okay for us. Yeah, nice. Um, and has it been easy enough for the tech team in Lancaster to to hop remotely and, and do everything remotely? I mean, obviously, it's it's possible from a technology point of view, but have they found it okay as well? Yeah, I mean, you know, I mean, uh, pre-COVID, we were, you know, Lancaster is it's like only two, just over two hours uh, direct in, into London, so it's not like it's uh, it's not Mars, right? So it's it's easy it's easy enough for like you know we had. All, all new recruits, no matter where they're based, all go to Lancaster for orientation. You know, we have commercial teams coming up to Lancaster. We have, um, you know, analysts and tech teams going down to London all the time anyway. So, no, that's all been pretty seamless. Uh, it's not been, not, not been a problem at all. Yeah, so the whole company's just been used to working like that anyway. So it's just been an extended period of time <laughs> rather than... Uh, yeah, I mean, I think it's fair to say that we were quite big on having... We were quite office orientated as a culture and certainly we'll strive to get back to that as soon as we can because we're big believers in in physical presence. And so we've had a fantastic, you know, the team have done amazingly well um, at functioning and sort of keeping everyone's spirits up. But I am of the belief that that's a result of having a very tight office culture, not because of having a great COVID culture. So I think we seeded, yeah. we, we seeded the culture and actually did most of the growth pre, pre-COVID in terms of headcount, this is. The, the office culture allowed us to establish that culture, uh, be continual with it. And so everyone who now joins remotely, which we're doing our fair share of, um, is a beneficiary of the culture we've established whilst we were in the office. Yeah. We're, we're going to be quite keen to get back to it one way or another. And actually, yeah. and most of the team are as well. Yeah, no, it's a good point because, I mean, part of the fun of working for a, a scale-up is that kind of like camaraderie and, and the the kind of ever-changing face of it as well. So if you join and, and you're all remote, then it can be harder. Also, you put something interesting on LinkedIn. I can't remember when it was. It might have been at the start of lockdown one yeah. or two or whatever. You I mentioned exactly kinda, the one you're talking about, yeah. Yeah, as you mentioned that like all the proponents of yeah. remote, remote forever. 
Yeah, it's like the Remote Forever people are all people who, I don't know, have either, they've had like 10, 15 years experience and have been involved in lots of amazing in-person yeah. offices. Whereas if you're a new person, how do you get that was essentially your point. Yeah. Um, and it's a good one. Yeah. And I think it's really easy, like sitting, you know, and, and I live in a, you know, sort of quite near the Peak District in a sort of rural place. And it's easy for me to talk about how, yeah, it's all going to go home, home working because, you know, it's not that been rough. It's not been that rough on me. But, you know, when we got a bunch of sort of, you know, um, you know, early to mid-level career people in London living in apartments in London under pretty difficult conditions, I think there's two things. Like one is like they want out, like they're starting to lose their minds, number one. Yeah. Uh, and, and secondly, you know, I and most people in my position benefited massively from having personal networks uh, to progress their careers. And it, it's just so difficult to do that um, without being physically in the same place. And so I'm a mass. And so I, I get really annoyed when people, when senior people who've benefited from having a great physical network, in-person network, start talking about how we ought to go remote. I mean, obviously there's, there's health concerns and so on, and the world will be different um, as we yeah. sort of edge out to some version of normality. But um, no, we're, we're a big believer in, in, in the being physically together. I think it has massive benefits for, for people's careers and knowledge. Yeah. I've said this a few times on the show, and I definitely agree with you, but I think most companies will be a lot more flexible than they maybe used to be. And there will be elements of a couple of days here or there, or you can start at a different time or whatever that might look like. And that will be the biggest positive from my point of view. Being 100% remote all of the time, probably mm. not for, it probably won't work for a lot of people. But yeah, well, I mean, we'll see what happens. And then just to finish off, what does the, the rest of this year, kind of 2021 and beyond, look like for Relative Insight? Is there, is there any any kind of milestones that, that we can share or is it really just more of the same and, and keep growing the company? Well, it's obviously it's more, you know, we, we've got a load of growth to go in our sort of with our current product and our sort of current team. So we've, you know, there's a lot more exciting customers signing up. We, I think the other, the, the major thing for us is the product this year is that we're we're releasing some substantial new um, analysis capability in the product so you know we've established our position and, and and a rep even though no one's heard of us so we obviously need to step up our marketing um we, the, people, we, the people that need to know you have heard of you uh yeah although it's <laughs> I, although it's fair to say we've been very sort of sales led rather than marketing led so and so we're actually putting a lot of effort into marketing content now actually um so marketing's a big area of focus uh, and the product is a massive area of focus. We've got two new analysis modules which are coming out this year, which I believe are going to make a big, big impact on our on, on our customer base. So, a lot of lot of work, obviously, into the, the the product development, but also around the positioning and the go to market strategy for that. Nice. Uh, no, I'm excited to see where it goes. But thank you very much for joining. It was, it was really good to talk and, and get the the relative insight story. No, my pleasure. It's I you know. It, it's always easy to talk about yourself. So um, <laughs> that was the, that was the premise of the show. Get somebody yeah. on and just ask yeah. them questions about them for an hour. It'll be easy. Yeah. No, it's, it's great. So it's no, thank really, you very much. Really enjoyed it. <laughs>